Welcome. Thanks for watching Impact Christian Church's sermon video. Our mission is to love, learn, and serve. And now, here's the message. Man, thank you, praise team. Do you see our new bass player back there? I don't think Amber is going to let up serving until that baby is there in the hospital. Amen. Well, I need you to do something for me. I'm going to give you that first blank on your handout in about 30 seconds. So I need you to grab those message notes, hand it down to those in your row. I want to ask you a question as you're doing that. What do the greatest followers of Christ have in common? I suppose there's a lot of different answers we could give to this question. What do the greatest followers of Christ have in common? But this is what came to my mind last week. The greatest followers of Christ are just a little bit nuts. Write it down. Just a little bit nuts. I want you to think about it. The most effective, the most life-changing, the most world-changing, the most impactful Christians on the planet are just a little bit out there, aren't they? A little bit left of center. I want you to think of Paul and Silas. Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are preaching the good news in the city of Philippi. They get arrested. And after they get arrested, they get beaten severely on their backs. And then they're thrown into a dungeon, and their feet are put in stocks. And there they are with their feet in stocks, with their backs aching, bloody, and bruised. And what do they do at midnight? They start singing praises to God. If that's not weird, I don't know what is. What about David? He was probably 120 pounds soaking wet. And he runs out onto the battlefield to pick a fight with a nine-foot giant that probably weighed over 400 pounds. That's not too smart. What about Daniel? There Daniel was, knowing full well that a law had just been passed, that if you are caught praying to God, you will be thrown into a lion's den. And in this lion's den, you wouldn't have found Simba and Mufasa. In this lion's den, we had some hungry lions. And he knew full well that if he got caught, he was going in that lion's den. But what did he do? He opened his windows and he bowed down three times a day and prayed to God anyway. And he got thrown in that lion's den. These guys were not exactly the sharpest knives in the drawer, you would think. These guys were not rowing with both oars in the water compared to most people. They wouldn't do these things. What about others? What about Noah? The guy built the world's largest ship in the middle of a desert. What about Ezekiel? He went out one day and preached a sermon to a bunch of dry bones. That's not too smart. Uh, What about Balaam? He got into an argument with a jackass. That's not a normal thing to do. And while we're talking about people that are following God that aren't quite normal, let's be honest about Jesus. He did some weird stuff. He did some crazy things. Did you know that Jesus touched contagious lepers with his own bare hands? Uh, Jesus didn't put on the surgical gloves and then touch the leper. Uh, Jesus didn't touch the leper with his bare hands and then douse them in antibacterial gel afterwards. Jesus just touched the lepers. That's not sanitary. Did you know that Jesus would have meals with prostitutes and lowlifes? That's not a smart thing to do if you're trying to build your reputation as a rabbi in Israel. And did you know that Jesus, at Passover time, knowing full well that he was going to be arrested, that he would be crucified, nailed to a cross and die, he walked into Jerusalem anyway. And he underwent all of that, the arrest, 
the torture, the crucifixion, the death, even though he knew it was going to happen ahead of time. That's a little crazy. And while we're talking about craziness, I've got to talk about some of you people. Some of you people are just a little bit out there. Think about our praise team that was just up here on this stage. Our praise team, they're up here every week singing loud to a God who they've never even seen. That's a little bit nuts. What are they doing that for? What about some of our parking lot greeters? They're out there on some of these cold mornings greeting people, and some of those people they greet they never even met before. But they're out there greeting them anyways. That's a little bit weird. What about our nursery workers? They're back and back holding babies that are not their own, even after those babies spit up on them. Uh, That's a little odd. What about our elders? They help to lead this church, and they don't get paid a dime to do it. You know, you want the honest truth. Here's the honest truth. I think a whole lot of you people are a little bit odd. I think a whole lot of you people are a little bit weird. Praise God for that. In this world where we are surrounded by normal people, Jesus Christ calls His followers to be abnormal. Amen? Some of you may look at me and you might not think that I am a little nuts. I hope... I hope that after you get to know me, you'll change your mind. My wife and my four daughters can confirm, oh yeah, he's nuts all right. Because God has called me to be a little bit nuts for Jesus Christ, amen? And I want to suggest to you that he's done the same for you. He's called you to be a little bit nutty for Jesus Christ. Now, what on earth does this have to do with today's message? Well, more than you realize. Please grab your Bibles and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as we take a second look at this passage we looked at last Sunday. Uh, everybody needs a Bible in hand. If you're using your Bible app from your phone, that's okay. I do personally prefer one of these hard copies because I'm not distracted by emails and things when I've got a hard copy in my hands. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, I encourage you to bring it with you next time. In the meantime, you can grab one of those blue Bibles from the rack in front of you. If you're using a blue Bible, you'll find 2 Corinthians 5 on page 1144. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 6. And when you get there, please say amen. All right, here we go, starting in verse 6. Therefore... We are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind... It is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Amen. 
So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. May God bless us as we study his word today. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for the passion in Paul's heart. As he closed this passage by saying, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Lord, for each of us in this room who are believers and followers of Jesus Christ, I thank you that you placed at least one Christian in our path who implored us, who asked us, who taught us who showed us how to be reconciled to God. Someone has done that for us in our past. Led us to Christ. And I pray that we would do the same thing for others. That, Lord, you would inspire us today to take hold of this mission you've given us, the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling people to God. Lord, help us to join Paul in imploring people on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. And all God's people said, Amen. Turn to the person next to you and say, Honest truth, I think you're a little bit nuts. Go ahead. If someone said that to you, turn back to them and say, You're in good company. So last Sunday, we studied 2 Corinthians chapter 5 together, and we zeroed in on several verses. The first of those was verse 9, where the Apostle Paul writes, We make it our goal to please Him. We make it our goal to please God, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. And we spent a good amount of time talking last week about pleasing God. It was the first Sunday of the new year, 2020. We talked about what we can do to please God, and it kind of boils down to this. Our life's goal is to please God, is it not? Our life's goal, we exist to please God. I could please every person on the planet, but that's not going to matter when I stand before one on Judgment Day, because that one is God Himself. And as I stand before Him, ultimately, if the whole world loves me, but I did nothing for God, It's not going to matter on Judgment Day. And if the whole world hates me, but I please God with my life, on that day, that's the only one that will matter. And so we talked about pleasing God. The Bible shares with us many different things that we can say and do to please God. For example, we can please God by studying His Word and hiding it on our hearts. I believe that what you are doing with me right now pleases God. Amen? It's so important what you're doing right now, opening His Word and studying it together with other believers. It pleases God. We can please God by studying His Word and praying together with our spouse and with our kids. We can please God by making church attendance a priority each week. 
We can please God by humbly putting others' needs above our own needs. We can please God by loving our wives, by respecting our husbands, by raising godly children. Even though the New Testament doesn't specifically say it, we know that it pleases God if we donate blood to help save lives. We know it pleases God if we were to give up our time and energies and talents to volunteer at the local crisis pregnancy center or volunteer at a local food bank. Some of you come on Tuesdays and like clockwork, you're there at George Boulevard helping to hand out food to families that are low income that need food. And that pleases God. It pleases God that many of you who volunteer here on a Sunday morning, great job, all of these things please Him. And there are hundreds of other things that we could do that please God. Amen? And since there are hundreds, realistically, thousands of different things we could do that would please God, that means every day of the year we could each certainly find at least one or two things we could do just for God that day. Since there are thousands of things every day we can please God in one way or another. Now, what does Second Corinthians 5 teach us? Well, as we saw last week, particularly in verse 11 and in verses 18 through 20, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that one of the greatest ways that we could ever please God is to persuade sinners to be reconciled to God. There's a lot of things that can bring a smile to God's face, but this is one of the greatest ways, one of the most important ways that we could ever please God by leading people to Jesus so they can be reconciled to God. As I mentioned to you last week, if you really want to please God and at the same time do the nicest thing, the most important thing, the most loving thing you could ever do for a person, lead that person to Christ. Not only is it the best thing you could ever do for that person, it's the greatest way to please God. Uh, Two birds with one stone, kind of cool, isn't it? God gets pleased when we do what is the very best thing that we could ever do for a human being. Lead them to Christ so they can spend eternity with God in heaven. Now, it sounds a a little nuts to lead people into a saving relationship with a man who lived 2,000 years ago. It sounds a little nuts to lead people to Jesus Christ when you've never seen Him with your own two eyes. But ultimately, we know, don't we, in faith. As Christians, don't we know in faith that that is absolutely the best thing we could ever do for someone? God brought Jesus Christ to earth as the God-man. Jesus is no ordinary person that lived 2,000 years ago. He is the God-man. And when He comes into a life, He transforms a life. And those that are around us who are sinning against God and rejecting God, they don't even realize how much they need Jesus Christ. But what a loving thing to do to throw them a life preserver by introducing them to Christ, even though they don't realize how much they need Him. Now, there's no doubt about it, as Jesus' ambassadors, as His representatives on earth, our greatest God-pleasing mission is to persuade people to believe in Jesus Christ and be reconciled to God. Amen? Okay, that point is very clear in this passage. But wouldn't you agree that God isn't simply concerned with us carrying out this message of reconciliation? He's not just concerned with us doing the right thing. He wants us to do the right thing from the right motive. Would you agree? Paul would as well. God wants us to do the right thing from the right motive. And so here in this passage that we just read together, Paul actually gives us three godly motivations for leading people 
to reconcile with God. And I want to share with those, spend a few moments on each one. Godly motive number one is revealed to us in verses 9 through 13. The first godly motive for leading people to Jesus Christ so that through Jesus Christ they can be reconciled to God, the first godly motive is the fear of the Lord. It's the fear of the Lord. The Bible teaches us that if we are followers of Christ, we will always be in one of two places. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you'll always be in one of two places. Either you'll be here on earth, or if you're not here on earth, you're going to be there in heaven if you're a follower of Christ, right? And so, there's only these two places. And the Bible is equally clear that if you are a follower of Christ, there will come a day when you will have to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account of your life that you lived after getting saved. You'll have to give an account of your Christian life. Here in verse 10, that place is called the judgment seat of Christ. Say that with me. The judgment seat of Christ. The Greek word that's used here is the Greek word bima. Say that with me. Bima. Bima. B-E-M-A. Sometimes it's spelled B-H-E-M-A. That word bima was a common word used in the Greek culture and in the Greek language when the New Testament was written. You see, the Olympics uh, didn't begin a hundred years ago or whatever. The Olympics go back thousands of years. And the Greeks, as the ones who began those Olympic games, they would have this Bema seat. And this Bema seat was where the judge, where the official representative of the Olympic games would be seated. And when you were running a race, if you finished in first place in that Olympic race, you would proceed after the finish line to the Bema seat. And that judge, that official from the Olympics, would place a wreath on your head. It was the same as today's gold medal, signifying that you had won that race. And so that Bema seat was a place of reward. And so the Bible, especially in the New Testament, talks about several days of judgment. The the two most important ones I want you to focus on today are the Bema seat judgment and the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is talked about and explained in Revelation chapter 20, almost at the very end of our Bibles. In Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment is the time when those who have rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, those who are sinners, will stand before God and they will have to give an account of their entire life. And books will be opened that have inside those books the recordings of every word that you have ever said that was against God's laws. It's a little bit scary, isn't it? And everything you've ever done that was against God's laws, even every motive of your heart that was against God, that was selfish and putting your own needs above others, all of that will be spelled out in those books. And so, when you receive judgment in eternity, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, that judgment in eternity, that place we call hell, will be a just punishment because it will all be laid out there in black and white. The thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sins that you committed against God during your life here on earth. And just to make sure that the person didn't end up at the wrong judgment that shouldn't be at that great white throne judgment, there will be a final book open. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And the angel will check and make sure that your name is not in that book. Because if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, it won't be in there. Only those who follow Christ will have their name written in that book. And so all of those other books that contain all the things you've ever said, done, or even thought that were against God, your punishment in eternity will be just. 
But Christians, those who have made that decision to place their trust in Jesus Christ as the Savior of their sins and as the Lord of their life, as I like to say, put Jesus in the driver's seat of their lives, they won't be there at the great white throne judgment. They'll be here, 2 Corinthians 5, at the Bema seat judgment. And so the great white throne judgment is a place of punishment, a place where sentences, punishments, condemnation will be handed down. But at the Bema Seat Judgment, there will be no condemnation because as we read in the book of Romans, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's give them some glory today. Amen? There is no condemnation. So the Bema Seat Judgment is not a place where punishment and condemnation will be handed down. The Bema Seat Judgment is a place of reward. But what will happen, we read in the New Testament there at the Bema Seat Judgment, is your entire Christian life, your life that you lived after getting saved, will be fed through the flames. You with me still? Your entire Christian life will be fed through the flames, and according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, only that which you did, which was honoring to God and glorifying to Him, and part of building Christ's kingdom, and selflessly done, only those things will make it and survive the flames. So the reality is, many Christians will make it to the Bema Seat Judgment. They don't have to worry about going to hell. They're going to heaven. But sadly, many Christians, when their lives after getting saved are fed through the flames of testing, they will have very little to show for their lives on the other side of those flames because they did very little for Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but that bothers me a little bit. I do not want my Christian life to be fed through the flames. I gave my life to Christ at the age of seven. I'm now 46. So for 39 years, I've been following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If I were to die today and God were to pass my life through the flames those 39 years and there was almost nothing to show for it, what a tragedy it would be. I'm still going to heaven, but there would be very little reward for me in heaven because I did very little for Christ once he gave me the greatest gift in the universe, the gift of my salvation. The Bema Seat Judgment is for Christians. Now, Our first godly motive for persuading people to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior is our fear of God. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, sadly, most American Christians seem to have forgotten how important it is for us to fear God. We're not comfortable about talking about a God who can be a God of wrath. We're not comfortable talking about a God who created hell for Satan and his angels. Many churches today have three words that are not ever mentioned in the preaching. Hell, sin, and repentance. But those are three of the most vital words in our Bibles because hell is a real place for those who reject Christ. Sin is a real thing that is an affront to a holy God. And repentance is necessary for anyone who hopes to receive that grace and forgiveness and mercy in Christ. Amen? And so we will always be a church that mentions sin and teaches on repentance and teaches about hell because those three are so vital for us to understand the bad news that hell is a real place and understand why it's so vital that we embrace the good news that Jesus Christ has brought us an alternative to hell. 
Well, as followers of Christ, we know that God is a holy God. If I say these next few phrases and you agree with it, I'll need a little amen after it. We know, don't we, that God is a holy God. He is set apart from all sin and all selfishness. And He expects us to be set apart from all sin and all selfishness. If we're not, there's a good chance we're not really saved. This is where the amen start to taper off. If you and I are not truly set apart from sin and selfishness, we have to do some self-checking. Am I really saved? Because Christians do not live for themselves. They live for others and live for Christ. So if we're not really saved, we're not going to be at the Bema Seat Judgment. We're going to be at the Great White Throne Judgment. And if we end up at the Great White Throne Judgment, there's going to be hell to pay. Literally. God is a just God, and He will justly punish in eternity all sinners. We know this to be true as Christians, don't we? We know this is true. We don't like to talk about Jesus bearing a flaming sword and coming to tread the winepress of God's fury. We much prefer the image of Jesus with a little lamb on His shoulders, being meek and mild and kind and loving and merciful and gracious. But Jesus also has the flaming sword in Scripture, doesn't He? He is a just Savior. He has a, is a Savior that does have wrath. We understand this. No matter what all the paintings say, and what, no matter what all the paintings depict, we as Christians know these things to be true. And so we have to have a healthy fear of God as Christians. That healthy fear of God keeps me on the straight and narrow. Because I know God is very big, and He has the ability to thump me like that if He wants to. The fear of God, a healthy fear of God, is an important thing for every Christian to keep us on the straight and narrow. But also a healthy fear of the wrath of God in eternity is imperative if you and I are going to have the motivation to lead people to Jesus Christ. We have to have a little bit of a fear of hell in us. Amen? Because the world doesn't. The world doesn't. They don't get it. They don't get it. They still think that God, if He's real, is some sort of Santa Claus up there. And if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, if I've only got two felonies and not three, hey, two strikes, I'm not out. No no big problem. I'm going to stand before God and I'll be fine. I'll squeak by. I'll make it into heaven. The world still doesn't understand the fear of God, but we do. The world still doesn't understand the reality of hell, but we do. And so Paul says the fear of God motivates us to lead people to Christ. But that's not our only motivation, is it? Number two, our second godly motive is the love of Christ. I love this one. It's in verses 14 through 17. Paul says Christ's love compels us. Amen? Is Jesus a Savior that's got some wrath? Yep. Is He a Savior that is going to bring justice on the earth one day? Yes, absolutely. But is he, is he, at the same time, a Savior of incredible, indescribable love? You better believe He is. If you've heard it once, you've probably heard it a hundred times, God loves you. Amen? God loves you. But do you realize that God doesn't just love the new you? He loved the old you also. And that old you wasn't too lovable, was He? That old you wasn't too lovable, was she? She wasn't. He wasn't. The old you... Excuse me, well, that was a... Excuse me. 
And that went across Facebook for all to see. Hey, you catch that sermon early January? Yeah, the preacher was belching in the middle of a sermon. So, where was I? Oh, thank you. I completely lost my train of thought. So you see, God loved the old you, not just the new you. Amen? And so when you've got those friends and you've got those family members and you've got those neighbors and you've got those coworkers that drive you to your last nerve, that drive you up the wall, that are just a pain in the neck to be around, never forget God loves them today. But he loves them too much to leave them the way that they are. And the love of God compels us to share Jesus Christ with them. According to verse 15, Jesus loved us so much that he died for us. And he died for us so that we could live for him. And as a wise Christian once said, Christ died our death for us that we might live his life for him. Isn't that good? Let's read that together. Christ died our death for us so that we might live his life for him. One more time. Christ died our death for us, that we might live his life for him. Doesn't that sound perfectly fair? Doesn't that sound perfectly fair? He, <laughs> he died my death for me. He didn't deserve to die on the cross. I did. He was dying for my sins, not his own. He didn't have any sins. And doesn't it seem perfectly fair if he died my death for me, that I should live his life for him. Jesus Christ loved me so much that he sacrificed his life for me. And that amazing love compels me to sacrifice my life for him. But you and I, we get the better end of that bargain, don't we? He sacrificed his, love, his life for us, but that required his excruciating death. When we sacrifice our lives for him more times than not, we still get to live. He was a dead sacrifice. We get to be living sacrifices. Christ's great love should compel us to live every day of our lives as a thank you gift to Him and offering to Him an act of love to Him. And as we live our lives for Jesus every day, what is one of the best ways that we can truly show Him our thanks and our love? As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, we do it by persuading others to be reconciled to the God of love. Paul understood this so well. Paul, I'm sure, was deeply moved by what Jesus Christ had done for him. Paul was a murderer. Paul was persecuting Christians. He looked at his own life and he said, you know what? I was the worst of sinners. And he must at times just have been blown away when he began to think about that amazing, indescribable, uncompromising, undeserved love of Christ that had been upon him, and that mighty love of Christ in his life compelled him to share the message of Christ with others. And it should motivate us to do the same. That first godly motive is fear. We fear God and we have a a healthy fear for that punishment in eternity that will come to our family and friends and neighbors if they don't humble themselves and accept Christ. We have this love for Christ. We're compelled to to share that message of love with others because we're so overwhelmed by the love of Christ on us. And number three, our third godly motive, understanding our duty and privilege. Understanding our duty and privilege. Our fear of God is so important. The recognition of Christ's love is so important. That should inspire us to persuade people to accept Christ. But here in verses 18 through 21, 
Paul shares this final reason. We should persuade people to accept Christ and be reconciled to God because it is our duty. It is your duty. If you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, it is your duty to share Jesus Christ with those around you. It is your duty. And it is also your privilege. Say this with me. It is my duty. It is my duty. And it is my privilege to share my amazing God with everyone who will listen. I think the angels get a little bit jealous of us at times. The angels get to experience heaven on a daily basis. The angels, many of them, get to be in the presence of God on a regular basis and see the glory and the majesty and the love and the mercy and the grace of God in a way you and I have never even begun to see. They get to experience this every day. They know how awesome heaven is. And they know how horrible hell is. And you better believe that the angels would love to be able to come down to earth and be given the privilege that you and I are given every day to point people to Jesus Christ, to tell them about the Savior that loves them, to lead them into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ so they can experience heaven someday instead of hell. You better believe the angels sometimes get a little bit jealous of you and me. And they must shake their heads completely and completely baffled by Christians who refuse to share their faith. Angels must be baffled by Christians that say, eh, that's the pastor's job. Eh, that's the evangelist's job. Angels must be baffled by Christians who do not take that beautiful opportunity to simply invite someone to church, to simply hand out an invitation or a gospel track, to simply say, you know what, your life would be a lot better if you follow Jesus Christ. That's not that hard, is it? It's not that difficult. We are given a privilege even the angels don't get to enjoy. The privilege of leading people to Christ. Rick Warren, I think, in his book, The Purpose Driven Church, does a good job of pointing out the five purposes of any church that follows Christ. The five purposes, number one, is discipleship. Leading people to get to know Christ's Word better and to follow Him better as Christians. Purpose number two is worship. One of the purposes of the church is to worship God. Amen? Third purpose is fellowship, to get together and partner with other Christians and fellowship with other Christians. Number five is service. We use those gifts God has given us, our talents and abilities to serve others. And number five is evangelism, to introduce people to Jesus Christ that don't know Christ. Do you know of the five purposes of the church, there's only one that cannot be done in heaven? We can experience discipleship in heaven. We can grow in our faith and grow in our knowledge of God's Word. Amen? We can fellowship in heaven. We can get together with other Christians and, and partner together to serve and to, to enjoy each other's company and fellowship. We can fellowship in heaven. Uh, we can not just worship and be discipled and fellowship in heaven. Uh, we can, number four, serve others in heaven and do great acts of service in heaven. But the one thing that we cannot do in heaven is evangelism. Because everyone who is in heaven is already saved. The only one of those five purposes of the church that we cannot do in heaven 
is to share our faith with others and lead them to a saving knowledge of Christ. It's the only purpose of the five that we can only do down here. And so for any church that desires to please God, to honor God, and to do the greatest things we can for God, any church that prioritizes pleasing God naturally will have evangelism rise to the surface of those five. Because it's the only one we can't do anywhere else but here. Oh, God has given us this great charge to be his ambassadors, to be his representatives. Sharing the message of reconciliation with those that don't know Christ is our duty and it is our privilege. Persuading people to come to Jesus is your duty and privilege. So don't neglect your duty and don't squander your privilege. Now, last Sunday, I shared with you some of the exciting successes that we have enjoyed as a church over the past three months. As I mentioned to you last week, and some of you got to read it in our vision letter a couple weeks ago, we had 11 baptisms the last three months of 2019. Praise God for that. 11 baptisms. 26, 26 Christians become new members of Impact Christian Church. That's awesome. 26. Had lots of new visitors coming in on a regular basis here. Many first-time visitors and so many have come back to be second, third, and regular attenders. What a blessing what God has done over the last three months here at Impact. You and I have been given this wonderful blessing in recent months. And God is calling us to do even greater things in 2020, isn't He? He's He's calling us to have an even greater impact in our community in the year 2020. God has bigger and even better things in store for us. These blessings that God has in store for us, though, these blessings, these rewards will only come as we do our part. You and I have to roll up our sleeves and we have to work together out of a healthy fear of God out of a uh, compulsion, a a compelling uh, belief that Jesus Christ's love needs to be shared with everyone in the world, out of this uh, feeling of duty, out of this, this feeling of privilege that God has given us, we have to do our part to share Christ, don't we? We have to do our part. I believe God wants us to lead, as I mentioned last week, at least 50 people to salvation this year. More than we've ever brought to salvation, more than we've ever baptized in a year. I believe God wants us to bring 50 to a saving knowledge of Christ in 2020. Amen? Amen? He wants to see us bring 50 souls, kids and teens and adults to a saving knowledge of Christ this year. And these 50 can only be brought to Christ if we are doing this together. I can't do it on my own. Our staff can't do it on its own. Our elders can't do it on their own. And I want to suggest to you today that there are four things that are the duty and privilege of every Christian here as a part of Impact Christian Church this year in regard to the message and ministry of reconciliation. I want to suggest to you that there are four duties and four privileges that God would like every single one of us to carry out. Number one, every day pray for 50 salvations in 2020. Can you do that with me this year? Will you do that with me this year? Every single day. It may be a five-second prayer as you're praying for your meal at dinner time or before you go to bed or in your own personal devotion time. Pray, God, I pray that you would help us as a church lead 50 people to salvation this year. In Jesus' name, amen. 
How hard is that? God needs us praying for 50 souls. Raise your hand if you're willing to do this with me this year. I believe, Christians, I'm going to be a little bolder than I normally am up here on a Sunday morning. I don't believe this is a request. I believe it is your duty. I don't believe this is just a request. I believe it is your privilege given by God to pray for salvations every day. Number two, the first was every day. The second one is every week. Every week, invite three people to church. The staff can't do this on their own. We are working hard inviting people to church, but we need every person who is a regular attender at Impact to be inviting people to church every week. I want to encourage you once again. Some of us have gotten a little lazy on this in recent weeks. Christmas was a little crazy. It was a little busy. I understand, but it's a new year. Have these in your back pocket every day or in your purse, ladies, or in your wallet, guys. Every single day, I try to have at least three of these invitation cards to impact. We brought extras today. We've got hundreds at the back table. Take at least a handful of these. Have them in your pocket, wallet, or your, or your purse, even in your car every single day. And say, God, I want to invite three people to church this week. Open up the opportunities. And it may be the lady at the drive through window. It may be a coworker, it may be your next door neighbor, it may be a family member that you've been praying for, but you haven't had the guts to ask them. This is your year. Invite three people to church every week. Number three, once a month, bring with you to church at least one person or one family. One person or one family. These chairs need to be filled, amen? And some of those chairs need to be filled with your family members your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers. Teenagers, every week that you come, I'm so glad that you're here. But most of you do not invite your friends to church. I need you to invite your friends to church. And I need you to bring your friends to church. I want to say something, teens. Don't be embarrassed. I just want to speak to you as an old guy up here that's been there and done that a bit. Some of you are going to school right now with someone who will be in a high political office in 20, 30 years. Some of you may be going to school with the next governor of, not next, but a governor of California in 20, 30, 40 years. Some of you are probably going to school with the next Bill Gates. Some of you are probably going to school with the next whoever, who's a person of influence. Maybe it's LeBron James. The next LeBron James is on your basketball team. You know, Michael Jordan got cut from his high school team. And maybe that kid on the team that got cut and they bumped him down to JV. And he's going to be the next Michael Jordan. You never know who you're going to school with this day that in 20, 30 years is going to be one of the greatest influences in our nation. And here's the question. When that person becomes the greatest influencer in our nation, will he be taking Jesus Christ with him? Will she be taking Jesus Christ with her? And it all may come back to this school year when you had the guts to invite that friend or that classmate to come to youth group or come to church. Teens, I want to encourage and challenge you. And adults, you know you're next. Adults, we need to be setting the example. Many of us have kids and teenagers living in our homes and they never see us bring others to church. That's not the greatest thing, is it, adults? Adults, some of us have kids and teenagers and even grown adults of our own living under our own roof and we don't bring them to church. Maybe this is the year God has called us to step up and bring those to church who are under our own roofs. God has called us to all be a part of this. Every day to be praying for 50 salvations. Every week to be inviting at least 
three people to church every month, bringing at least one person or family to church. And number four, I so much want this for everyone in the room today. I want you to personally lead at least one person to Christ this year. I was telling our staff at lunch the other day, I am hoping and praying for 50 baptisms. You know what I would love? If we have those 50 baptisms this year, and I am only personally baptizing 45 of them. Because 45 are baptized by you. And we as a church will do everything to help support you in carrying out these goals successfully. We're going to have that baptistry set up the fourth Sunday of each month. Like today, we'll be teaching kids in adult baptism classes. Patrick and, and Javier and Christy and I are, are available Sometimes on a moment's call, if you have a friend or family member or neighbor who you want us to come over and share Christ with them, we would love the opportunity to help you share Christ with them. We are ready to support you in this, but church, you can do this. And this year, I want to be your number one cheerleader in saying you can pray every day for 50 salvations and do it faithfully. You can invite three people to church every week and do it faithfully. You can bring someone to church every month and do it faithfully. And you yourself, little old you, can lead one person to Jesus Christ this year. And you can be standing there by the waters of baptism and help dip them back into the water as they make it clear I'm following Jesus Christ from this point forward. He is my Lord and He is my Savior. And whenever that time comes, I'm going to heaven. And I'm going to get a heavenly reward because when I stand before Him at that Bema Seat judgment. I am serving the Lord because you as my family member or friend have shown me what it's like to follow and serve Jesus Christ. I want you to experience the joy of seeing your family and your friends saved this year. I want you to experience the joy of seeing your neighbors saved. Church, you can do this. And we are here to support you with that. And we'll do this together for the glory of God. And as Forrest Gump once said, that's about all I have to say about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us for the glory of God to pray every day for salvations. And I thank you, Lord. I I imagine there's one last little blank on that handout I forgot to mention, Lord, but maybe you've already laid on the heart's of some people here, the name of that person that you have in mind for them to lead to Christ this year. And I pray that they would just write that name on that line and make that commitment just between them and you. This is the person that, God, you're leading me to lead to Christ this year, and I'm going to do it, but I need your help. Lord, I pray that we would see our friends and our family and our neighbors and our classmates and our co-workers saved this year for the glory of God. Help us as a church to always be ready on a moment's notice to help lead people to Christ, to help hand out those invitations, to help with rides for those that need rides, to help share that good news message with those that need to hear it. As our eyes are closed, as our heads are bowed, I want to first of all pray for those of you who are here today and you don't know if you yourself are going to heaven someday. You really don't know if you're going to be at that great white throne judgment or you're going to be at that Bema seat judgment. You don't know because you've never made a clear and definite decision to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you're here today 
and you know that you need to get right with God and accept Him as Lord and Savior for the first time, I'd like you just to raise your hand right now as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Just raise your hand almost always on a Sunday in a group this size. There's at least one. You need to accept Christ today. Don't assume that you're saved. We want you to know that you're saved. Amen. I see those hands. Amen. Any others? Any others? I want to pray for you. I also want to pray for those of you that are going through a particularly difficult time. I mentioned Mark Stone's service is this upcoming Friday. We want to keep Adrian in our prayers. Yesterday we had a, a service for June Benavidez who used to attend our church that passed away last weekend. Some of you are going through some terrible Difficult times with deaths in the family or maybe a cancer diagnosis or health issues or financial issues. If, if you're going through some stuff and you would like me to pray for you right now, just raise your hand right now. now. Some of you have upcoming surgeries. Some of you have marriages that are struggling. Every morning I'm praying for six marriages, six couples that I know that are really struggling in their relationships right now. Maybe you have a relationship issue. Just raise your hand. If any of those things apply, I want to pray for you as well. Thank you. I see those hands. God bless you. Heavenly Father, I pray, first of all, that you would be with those who need to be saved, those that raise their hands. And I pray in their heart of hearts that they would come to you right now, right here in the middle of this prayer, and say, Lord Jesus, please forgive me. I believe that you are Savior, and I want you to be my Lord. I want you to take the driver's seat of my life. Lord, I repent of my sin. I turn from my sin and I want to follow you from this point forward. If you're here today and you raised your hand because of illness or relationship issues or financial issues or grief, Lord, I pray for each of those that raise their hands. Lord, those that are going through a difficult time, would you give those peace who need peace? Would you give those wisdom who need wisdom with the decisions they're facing? Would you bring healing to those that need healing, individuals with physical, emotional, or spiritual issues, Lord? Would you bring healing to them? Would you bring healing to the relationships and the marriages that are struggling? And Lord Jesus, I pray that those that are discouraged or in despair, that you would lift them up in Jesus' name. Lord, we love you. And we thank you that you have heard And that you will bring your perfect answer to these prayers in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for watching. Please share this video with friends and family. Please visit our website at greaterimpact.cc. God bless.